Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. If, if you're able, would you stand please as we read these few verses together? The Apostle Paul writes to the early church in Rome, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what fruit did you then gain from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the fruit you have leads to sanctification, and the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God. And you may be seated. Uh, So from these few verses, I'll preach from the title, Free from the Inside Out. On June 19th, 1865... General Gordon Granger of the Union Army arrived in Galveston, Texas, after traveling from Louisiana. The Civil War had been won in April, and the Emancipation Proclamation had been announced by President Lincoln on New Year's Day, 1863. Despite having been in effect for two and a half years, news of emancipation had been kept from enslaved Texans by the guardians and the beneficiaries of the Confederate Rebellion. General order number three, the official communication read by General Granger that day, read in part, slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. In her little book on Juneteenth, historian Annette Gordon-Reed writes, announcing the end of slavery would have been shocking enough stating that the former enslaved would now live in Texas on an equal plane of humanity with whites was on a different order of magnitude shocking. She goes on, the idea that the society that oppressed them might be transformed into one based upon equality influenced black Texans in much the same way that the Declaration of Independence influenced blacks in the early American Republic. Seeing that black people could exist outside of legal slavery put the lie to the idea that blacks were born to be slaves. It was this powerful combination, a declaration of freedom along with a confession of what had always been true, that women and men of African descent were as fundamentally worthy of freedom as everybody else. It was this combination which compelled African Americans, first in Texas and then throughout the South, to turn June 19th into a yearly celebration of remembrance and rejoicing. In addition to parades and bountiful meals, the holiday typically included a worship service. During these services, preachers would regularly take John 8 and 36 as their text. So, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. There in Holy Scripture, from the mouth of their Savior, the formerly enslaved and their descendants found divine evidence of the source of their freedom. It wasn't only that they had been declared free by the nation which had built itself on their exploitation. 
No, their freedom was fundamentally who they were because Christ had made it so. Much more than a status which could be given or taken, being free was their birthright as children of God. Now, if you have found a church home at New Community, it's likely that you value freedom. You likely believe that the coming of God's kingdom brings liberation for captives and freedom for those who have been imprisoned. But with all of our collective enthusiasm for freedom and liberation, it is possible that we could miss what those black Texans intuitively and joyfully understood. That the deepest and truest freedom does not come from what someone else says about your status, but about what God has already done for your personhood. As citizens of this country, we realize that the status of freedom is essential to our democracy and something, let's be honest, that we have to be vigilant about, especially for those most likely to be exploited. And yet as Christians, we cannot forget that the freedom won for us by Jesus is longer lasting and more transformative than anything this fickle nation will ever deliver. Here in the middle of his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul was also concerned with grasping the nature of true and lasting freedom. In fact, for Paul, not everything that claimed to be freedom actually made people free. In these verses, Paul taught the difference between death-paying freedom and life-giving freedom. So before we go any further, let me make an observation, a reflection. After 13 years as a church which values reconciliation, justice, and freedom... I have noticed something we ought to be honest about. There have been many over the years who are attracted to a community, a church community, which values liberation. They often come to us rightly angered by the captivity and oppression which still regularly characterize our world. They come ready to seek freedom, to win freedom, to fight for freedom. And then... As time passes and the forces opposed to freedom reveal the extent of their entrenchment and resistance, they get tired. They burn out and creep toward cynicism. And after a while, many of these friends drift away. Somewhere in their hearts, they have resigned themselves to the patterns of captivity in our world and decided that the best they can hope for is to play by those rules. Now, if I sound disappointed by this observation, it is because I see that temptation in my own heart. And I desperately want something better for all of us. I want a foundation strong enough to keep building for freedom, even when captivity seems to be winning. A foundation which grounds our very identities in the freedom God gives to us. A freedom which cannot be granted or stolen by anything in this world. And I think that we find that freedom 
that foundation in this passage today. Here's what I hope that we will grasp. We experience our God-given freedom by surrendering to our freedom-giving God. That's what I want us to hang on to today. That we experience our God-given freedom by surrendering to our freedom-giving God. This is the foundation that we need. So what does it mean to experience our God-given freedom? Just two things for us this morning. First, we experience what we are free from and what we are free for. And we experience both what we have been freed from and what we are freed for by purposefully remembering our freedom-giving God. Uh, So let's start with the first of these, that we experience what we are free from by remembering our freedom-giving God. Paul sets up a contrast here that I think is helpful to visualize. There's a before and an after. Paul says that you were enslaved to what? Sin, which leads to the fruit of... And eventually to what? All right. In contrast, Paul says, when we are surrendered to, it leads to the fruit of, and eventually to, all right. So that's the contrast that the apostle Paul is setting out in this. That's the contrast, the before and the after. That's the movement from sin to shame to death to God, sanctification, and life. I want us to keep that contrast in our minds throughout uh, this message. Paul says that once you were enslaved to sin. Uh, The word for slave here is the Greek word doulos, which can be translated either as uh, a slave or as servant. It can be, it's translated both throughout the New Testament. But the The emphasis is on being subject to and being subject to someone or something which has organizing power in your life. The the, the power to organize your actions, your priorities, uh, 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 the, 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 the daily stuff of your existence. Paul says that once we were doulos, subjected to Sin. In scripture, sin is to to miss God's standard, but sin also operates as a spiritual power. So Paul says we were once subject to the spiritual powers opposed to the will of God. That that was our our status. And and as, as those who were enslaved to sin, Paul says, you were free from righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, righteousness can either be uh, 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 like an attribute or an action. Righteousness can be who you are. We are declared righteous in Christ Jesus. When, When we give our lives to Jesus, we are declared right before God. But righteousness can also have the flavor of justice, what it is that we do, ethical actions in the world. And the note here seems to be more on ethical actions, on justice, because Paul contrasts it with shame. Shameful actions, shameful deeds. Now, the Bible teaches that you and I can know right and wrong, even if we were captive to sins, but we are unable 
to free or rescue ourselves from sin. So we were enslaved to sin and free from truly righteous, ethical actions, always returning to our captivity. And this leads to, Paul says, the fruit of shame. Paul seems to have in mind like the after, after you've given your life to Jesus and you're looking back at your previous life, at your actions, and and there's a sense of regret that comes along with that. There's a sense of like, I wasn't living the full life that God created me to, to live my life for. But we also know that that sense of shame can creep in even while we are still living in sin, even while we are still captive to sin. Some of us, we're not that far from giving our lives to Jesus. We can remember those moments of quiet honesty where the truth kind of crashes in on us. That despite our best efforts, we seem to keep returning to the same futile way of living. The shame is not from God. We need to be clear about that. Our God is not a shaming God. Somebody say amen. Amen. The shame comes from recognizing that we are living out of harmony with our creator and with the rest of the creation. We are not living for the ends God created us to live for. We are not living out our purpose in the world. And there's a sense of brokenness and regret and shame that creeps in with that. Enslaved to sin, leading to shame, and ultimately, Paul says, to death. Twice, Paul says that the ends here are death. First, he says the end of those things is death. If you were here last week, we said that the Greek word for end is what we translate as telos. The inevitable result, the, 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 the purposed end of anything. Paul says that, that sin's inevitable result, its perfected purpose, is death. It's what it leads to. And then he shifts the metaphor and he says the wages of sin is death. The the expected payment of sin is death. And the death Paul has in mind is not just you die at the end of your life. It's, It's the separation from God. Because again, he contrasts it to life later on in this passage. This is what God, I know that's all sounds super depressing, but Paul says, that's what you've been freed from. You've been freed from sin, from shame, and from death. You were subject to sin. You were unable to free, to save, to rescue, to redeem yourself. You were subject to the wages of sin, to the telos of sin. This was the inevitable direction of your life under the regime of the spiritual powers of sin. Before. Oh, but. In Christ, you have been given the gift of God, which is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Sin pays in shame and death. In other words, we we earn shame and death. We were subject to sin, unable to free ourselves. This was the inevitable natural response to that captivity. But notice that Paul says that it's not the wages of righteousness which leads to life. It's the what? It's the gift. Because while we could pay for our sin, we could not pay by our way out of our subjection to sin. We needed an intervention. Amen. We needed a rescue from the outside. 
And so it is, Paul says, the gift which disrupts the natural ends of our sin. It is the gift of God which interrupts the inevitable natural progression of the telos of our sin. The fruit of sin is shame, but Jesus takes on to himself our shame on that cursed tree. The the wages of sin is death, and Christ pays the wages of death with his own. Having erased our shame and canceled our payment, Christ extends to us the gift of life. It is grace which sets captive people free. It is grace which shatters chains of oppression. It is grace which compels justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It is grace which interrupts generational curses, which heals the shame-sick soul. It is grace which points the way beyond addiction. And we could go on, couldn't we? It is the free grace of Jesus which breathes courage into fear, which calls hope from despair, which builds shalom from decay, which translates grief into joy, and which resurrects new and eternal life from the shadow of death's tomb. Is that good news to anybody today? Our freedom-giving God frees us from sin, shame, and death. By the disruptive, interrupting gift of grace. I want to know, do you know your freedom from today? Can you celebrate your freedom from today? Can you testify to your freedom from today? If you're not a Christian this morning, it's important to say very clearly and very plainly that we cannot pay our way out of the inevitable consequences of sin. It is a gift. It is grace that all we have to do is receive. Amen. All we have to do is say yes to and to surrender to that gift of grace. And if you are a Christian this morning and you find yourself stumbling back into sin, what you need to know is that you have been freed from the power of sin. That perhaps the invitation is to surrender again and again and again, such that life is born in you newly today. Our freedom, giving God, has set you free from sin. Which means that those who have received the gift of life are fundamentally free people. This is not just a status. This is not just a A label. It is who you are. Which leads then to the second point, which is this. We experience what we are free for by remembering our freedom giving God. Again, remember, we were enslaved to sin and so free from righteousness, which led to the fruit of shame and death. Now we are subject to God and so free from sin and the fruit is sanctification and the result is life. In Christ Jesus, we are free from the captivity to sin. You are, to use philosophical language, ontologically free. I'm not sure I exactly know what that word means. It just means that at your essence, in your being, you are free, period, in Christ. We are free people. And oftentimes, that's where we stop. Now, I think there's a good reason for that, because it's such good news 
that we've been freed from sin. It's such good news about what what Christ has liberated us from that we often stop right there and we sing the song, no more shackles, no more chains, no more bondage. I am free. And we're saying, I am free from, and it's a beautiful testimony. The the problem is, is that if we leave it there, we're actually kind of conforming to a societal understanding of freedom. We live in a society which understands freedom as mostly about what we are free from. We are free from constraint. And because we are free from, then we are free to act however we want to act as long as we are not noticeably, visibly harming somebody else. This is why consent is sort of like the, 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 the end-all, be-all in a society that understands freedom as being freedom from. Consent is very important. Consent is very important. But it is a small piece of the Christian vision of freedom. Now, we could kind of beat up on our society about this, but we have to admit that the church has actually internalized a lot of this. Over 20 years ago, a couple of sociologists studied white evangelical churches, and and they identified uh, a few of the core, what they called sociocultural tools in the white evangelical toolbox. One of those tools is what they described as free will individualism. And the idea here is that when we say yes to Jesus, we are freed from some stuff, and then we move about the world mostly as just autonomous free will individuals. We don't see our connections or our obligations to anybody else. You could see the results of this, one of the results of this, during the pandemic, when a whole bunch of white evangelicals got really upset about having to social distance, you know, or maybe take a pause from Sunday worship. It betrays a kind of world, uh, a worldview. My point is that as Christians, we're not really off the hook when it comes to this truncated understanding of freedom. The assumption is, is that freedom from any kind of captivity or bondage then just frees us to move through the world autonomously, without obligation, subject to no one. Uh, I, some of you were here last week when I shared the results of a, a recent University of Chicago survey that showed over generations a decreased uh, value of community engagement, participation in religious practice, patriotism, and so on. All things that, that involve community and participating with, with other people. And I have to wonder if one of the reasons for that is this view of freedom, that it's just, it's just me on my own. And then you tweak it a little bit if you're a Christian. You say, it's just me and Jesus. Right? Right? So, say all that. The Bible's vision of freedom is very different. It's more than that. And we need to, we need to be clear about this. The biblical understanding of freedom is, yes, freedom from all sorts of things to celebrate that, but also freedom, what? For. For. If, if, you, if you look at and read and study the time after uh, the end of the Civil War through, through the period of Reconstruction, one of the things that, for me at least, is so notable is uh, the many different commitments that black individuals and families made after emancipation, after freedom. The commitments they made. First, to marriage. Uh, uh, People wanted their marriages to be uh, civilly recognized. Or, watch this, if, 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 if spouses had been separated during enslavement... 
people were taking out ads in newspapers. People were traveling around the country uh, to, to find their spouse. Commitments to, to marriage. Commitments to education. To building schools. To raising up teachers. Uh, to, uh, uh, to raising up uh, younger generations who would have the gift of, of education. Commitments to civic responsibility. People were getting elected in the, in the immediate years after the Civil War, to local office, state office, federal office, it, it, this, this country that had literally abused them. These, these women and men were making commitments to, to, to make better, to serve in a way that made the country better. And then the one that kind of blows my mind is the commitment to the land. Because you think about the, the experience of most of these formerly enslaved people on plantations, the way that land was used to dehumanize and exploit and extract, and yet you had individuals and families saying, no, I, I want my piece of this land to care for, to steward, to raise crops. I, I, I want my, 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 my 40 acres plus to, to care for, to be committed to. I think in in all of these different commitments, we actually see a vision of Christian freedom. Because these women and men had been freed from, but they were very clear that they were freed for something. They were freed for care, for commitment, and so on. And the evidence of this, I think, is in the way that the white supremacist status quo then reacted violently to the way that this freedom was being expressed. Because you see, these formerly enslaved people weren't just like, okay, I'm good with my little freedom in this bubble just all by myself. They were going to make a difference. They were going to change some things because they understood that their freedom was for. And so there was a massive backlash that we understand and experience even to this day. So if if freedom from righteousness leads to shame and death, then freedom from sin leads to sanctification and life. Let's talk about those two words for a moment. Sanctification. It means becoming holy. Becoming holy. And I know that's, that's not any better than sanctification. Like sanctification feels hard enough, right? becoming holy. So, so oftentimes when we hear that word uh, sanctification or holiness, our minds go to behavior, to moral behavior. And I'm asking you not to do that. Because in, in scripture, sanctification or becoming holy is much more about becoming. The, 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 the living, the action comes out of the becoming. If we skip the becoming and go right to behaving, we just got a whole heavy thing of legalism on top of us, right? So sanctification is about becoming, becoming, becoming like God. Becoming like the one in whose image you were created. This is not to downplay our actions. Our actions are incredibly important. We, we saw this already. We were previously free from righteous action. But freedom from sin leads first to becoming holy, to living into the image of God, and then our actions flow from that. Without sanctification, without becoming holy, without growing up into the image of God, we will burn out in the freedom struggle. You're just not strong enough. You're just not smart enough. You don't have enough stamina. Unless, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we are conformed to the image of Christ, we will end up succumbing to the pattern of this world. So the sanctification question for us today is this. How deep is your well? Here's what I mean. When you find yourself burning out, when you find yourself getting overwhelmed, when you find yourself succumbing to the status quo, When you you find yourself overlooking somebody else's freedom for your comfort, how deep is your well in that moment? What are you drawing from? If the well is shallow, 
it may have a lot to do with sanctification. It may have a lot to do with the fact that you have been operating out of your own strength and your own energy. And that's, no offense to you, a shallow well. But what you find is that as you are sanctified, as the Holy Spirit is transforming you, as you are becoming holy, that well gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Can anybody testify to that today? I, look, I've been some of your pastors for a long, long time, and I've watched it happen in your life. I, I watched you go through, through things today that would have knocked you out five years ago, that would have taken you out five years ago, but your well is getting deeper. You're getting holier. You're growing more and more into the image of God. And so you have a deeper and deeper well to draw from. Sanctification, which leads to, Paul says, eternal life. You'd also translate eternal life as the age to come. So two things I want you to think of when you hear that word eternal life. The first is heaven. Heaven, after death, resting with Jesus Christ before he returns. That, for many people who have experienced the worst of this world, has been a massive source of hope. Look, whatever you do to me in this life, whatever you say to me in this life, I know that one day I will rest with my Savior, who is both my judge and my liberator. And you can't take that away from me. When we are clear about heaven, we are clear about hope. Anybody need hope today? We need hope. The second thing I want you to picture is this language of the age to come. Yes, heaven as we rest with Christ after death, but ultimately Christians are waiting for Christ to return and to bring about new creation for all of eternity, to restore and make all things new. And when we are clear about this, not only do we have a source of hope, we also have a source of endurance. Because we look around and see the way things are today and we go, your days are numbered. It will not always be like this. Jesus will return. And, And then even more so, Scripture tells us that through the Holy Spirit in us, that one day return is breaking into today. Because the Lord Jesus who will one day return is today living in you is acting in you, is speaking through you, is loving through you. So there is a way that through the Holy Spirit, the future is breaking into our present moment. I think that's cool because our God exists outside of time. Anybody else think that's just me, just me, just me? The hope of heaven and the endurance of the age to come. Hope and endurance signified in this gift of eternal life, which Paul says comes through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our freedom-giving God reminds us of what we have been freed from, sin, shame, and death. And Christ Jesus, our Lord, also reminds us that we have been freed for righteousness, holiness, and eternal life. This means that we can live lives of deep and enduring freedom because Jesus does not just free us and then abandon us to live autonomous lives on our own. We have been rescued from subjection to sin to surrender to God. From subjection to sin to surrender to God. There's a meme going around right now that's uh, like this video of a sheep that's stuck in a ditch. Yeah, a couple of you. Okay, good. I was hoping a few of you could picture this. The the sheep is stuck in a ditch and there's like a little arrow point. Malcolm, have you seen this one? There's a little arrow pointing to it and says something like me returning to my sin or something like that. And then the farmer, the farmer is off to the side and is like, 
the arrow is like Jesus, the good shepherd or something like that. But it's a video. And so you see the, the sheep struggling in the ditch. It's real tight. It can't get it out. It's wedged in there. And the farmer walks over, reaches down, picks up the sheep and sets it on the, on the, on the, on the ground, on the, on the pasture. And you can tell the sheep is very, very happy, right? Like I think sheep's bound. They jump, right? So this is frolicking, right? It's happy. And it's like frolic once, twice, three, four, five, like the sixth frolic. Guess what? Right back into the ditch. Like, boo, bam, right back, stuck, wedged in the ditch. Me returning to my sin. Church, that is not the kind of freedom that God has won for you. God doesn't free you from the ditch of your sin and then say, good luck. God frees you from subjection into surrender. To covering. To protection. To care. To watch. To love. This is what we have been freed into. We had been subject to sin. The gift of grace that Christ exhibits invites us to surrender to God. And from surrender, we then experience everything our freedom is for. Deep transformation into who God created us to be. Eternal life, which is our hope and our endurance. So again, a question. Are you experiencing, not just knowing, are you experiencing what Christ has freed you for? Those who are being sanctified, made holy, will grow in their confidence about who they are in Christ. Because you see, freedom is not negotiable for the person growing in holiness. It's just who they are. The one who has been freed for life, eternal life, life in the age to come, will grow in hope and endurance. Cynicism cannot cling to this person. When others are fading away, resigning themselves to the unfree status quo of this world, those who are convinced of what their freedom is for keep showing up. Keep loving their neighbors. Keep announcing the gospel of life into a culture of death. Keep advocating for those in prisons to systems of captivity. Followers of Jesus who are becoming like Jesus and whose vision is rooted in the enduring hope of life cannot help but alert this groaning world to our Savior's freedoms. Be honest, there's going to be ups and downs, opposition and discouragement, but ultimately... The women and men who have found their freedom in allegiance and loyalty to their freedom-giving God cannot be defeated on the long road to freedom. Because if Jesus leached death itself of its power, then what has the power to turn you around? We can sing with the saints who've gone before us, I'm going to stay on the battlefield until I die. Our freedom-giving God has set you free for holiness and for life. I'm coming to my conclusion, so worship team, you all can come on, come on up here. Paul writes that the wages of sin is death. I actually don't think you have to examine our world all that closely to see evidence of this all around us. The sinful systems of exploitation and domination pay death. The temptation to fall away from God's freedom for everybody, that is a strong temptation. Um, many of you know that I help lead Sankofa journeys uh, through, through uh, civil rights uh, uh, sites of significance in the South. 
And one of the highlights of, of every single one of these trips for me is on the very opening night as we gather in a church in Atlanta. After dinner, we move the, the, the group of participants into the sanctuary where we then hear from two elders of the civil rights movement. For the next hour, they share with us their memories, their experiences from those years, how their participation in the freedom struggle shaped them, and despite their advancing years, what they're still working on today. Still in it. During the Q&A time that follows, somebody from the group inevitably asks some version of this question. Do you think things were worse then or now? Or are we making any real progress toward freedom? And it's interesting, whenever this question is asked, you can tell it really resonates with the group. There can be a a discouragement uh, in in moments like that. People are looking around at the bitter fruit of the powers of sin in our world. And the results are, are sobering. And you know this. You felt this. The way that the elders answer this question is always fascinating to me. Because while they are too polite to say it, it's almost like they want to respond, that's the wrong question. Because the question about whether things are getting better or worse, less or more free, in many ways is a question that is generally asked from the confines of this present age. It's a question whose assumptions and imagination are limited by what our eyes can see and but what our ears can hear. It's a question shaped by pundits and politicians, by social media feeds and cable news screens. But the elders who come to share their testimonies with us would not still be standing, would not still be fighting, would not still be dreaming of freedom were their vision limited to this present age. It seems to me that they embody what it means to have truly been set free. Their many years reveal the beauty of holiness, of becoming the women and men God created them to be. Nobody can take away their freedom, a freedom inherent to the grace given them by their Savior. Their freedom is not up for discussion or debate. And while they are very much not oblivious to the systems of captivity and death to which many are still subject to today, they have found a way to live in light of heaven's hope of the righteous age to come. You might say that they are living with one foot in each age. As I listen to their courage and sense the fire which animates their commitments, it feels as though heaven has entered the room. It feels as though the powers of sin recede in the presence of an age of righteousness, shalom, and justice. An age which is to come and which through the presence of the Holy Spirit among the people of God is even now loosing bonds and breaking chains. Friends, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Rejoice today in all that Christ has set you free from. The power of sin and shame and death have been broken. 
by grace you have been set free and made holy and set apart for life eternal. Commit yourself in hope and hope to what your freedom is for. Surrendered to God, you have been commissioned as an agent of freedom, as an announcer of freedom. You are freedom's advocate and agitator and ambassador. So go then, free man, free woman, into a world that is still groaning for its liberation. Go with joy, full of the spirit of the living God who brings freedom. Subject to the Father who just is freedom and hidden in the Savior who paid the wages of your sin that you might be set free by his grace. Amen. Amen.